Welcome to Meet the Thriller Author. I am your host, Alan Peterson, and each new podcast will feature an interview with a thriller author. You're listening to episode number two, and in this podcast, I'll be interviewing thriller author Kevin Lee Swain. He's the author of Come What May, Project Strike Force, and The Chimera Strain. Kevin studied creative writing at Illinois State University with the late, great David Foster Wallace, who has been called one of the most influential and innovative writers of the last 20 years by the LA Times. I had the pleasure of interviewing Kevin recently, where we talked about his books, his job as an expert in intrusion prevention systems, and about being a student of a legend like David Foster Wallace. Can you share with us what it was uh, like having uh, David Foster Wallace uh, being your teacher and what that experience was like? People have asked me before, what was it like studying with him and what did he think of you? Oh, I don't know what he thought of me. And to be honest, I was one of a faceless horde of students that came in and out of his class. I'm sure that you know he had probably a thousand students at Illinois State University who studied creative writing with him over a 10-year period. So he probably you know didn't remember me at all. I, having said that, I used to see him at the gas station when he was buying cigarettes all the time, because uh, yeah, the gas station right down the street from where I work it was right near where he lived, and so I used to go down to you know get gas or get something to drink, and he's in there buying cigarettes because he just couldn't seem to quit smoking. And what university was this again? The Illinois State University. Oh, okay, Illinois State University. Interesting. Yeah. Lo- located in sunny Normal, Illinois. <laughs> Normal, Illinois. Is that the really the name of the town? Normal, Illinois. Normal, Illinois. It's named after. It used to be teaching colleges were called Normal Colleges, and they named the town Normal after the teaching college. And so, Illinois State University's biggest group of students are teachers. I think I don't know, probably fifty percent, maybe seventy percent of the teachers in Illinois go through Illinois State University. I know it's hard to say, describe a writing day because it can change, um, but can you like describe what a writing day yeah, is? Yeah, I, I, so you know, what really changed my life was Scrivener. So Scrivener, I'm sure you've heard of it. Scrivener you know, is a writing software that allows you to both write text and also organize uh, index cards virtually within the program. I always tell people that it's like a digital audio workstation for text. Whereas a digital audio workstation lets you slice and dice audio and put together a song, uh, Scrivener lets you slice and dice text and put together a book. And so, you know, before I used to track stuff in Word, but the nice part about Scrivener is that I can lay out scenes um, and structure using their virtual note cards. And then when when I actually get into the writing, my writing day really usually starts. Um, after I get home from my day job, I'll sit down and I will turn on Scrivener and I will start trying to reach my minimum word count for the day. And it's as simple as that. And some days it's a chore. Other days I reach my word count without even trying. And one of the more interesting things is usually after I'm done and I go back and look, I can't tell the difference. A lot of the times, some of the stuff that I was writing that I thought would just you know, was just trying to get words on paper to meet my word count turned out to be brilliant. And some of the parts that just flowed and I felt like I felt like I had divine inspiration turns out to be absolute garbage. But one of the nice parts about writing is, is that you really don't start writing until you start rewriting. So I always tell people that writing is the, the, the initial draft, at least writing is like throwing clay onto a turning wheel. 
It's all about trying to get the clay on there. It doesn't matter what it's going to turn into or what it's going to look like at that point, right? You just want to get the clay onto the wheel and get it turning and starting to take shape. The rewriting is where you actually turn that lump of clay into a vase, right? Or, you know, what, or a cup or whatever you're going to make. And so the, the day usually, you know, I'll get home, I'll try to crank out. In my case, I try to average 2,000 words a day when I'm actually, when I'm actually oh, writing. Wow. And so the nice part about Scrivener is it lets you track your writing by, by word count. So I try to crank out 2,000 words a day, and I will do that you know, Monday through Friday. On the weekends, I might try to get 4,000 words a day, um, depending on what's going on with both my regular job and personal life. I've got wife and kids, um, as, as most people do. Uh, so you know, I, I will just keep chugging away until I finally reached the end. Then I'll take a break for anywhere from a couple days to a couple weeks and go back and start rewriting it. And so a lot of the times I've got false starts, even though I, I lay out the scene structure ahead of time, the scenes, a lot of the times the scene structure uh, and, and the plot changes as I'm writing it. So I'll be the, the initial write. Um, I will be changing scene and structure on the fly when I'm done. You know, there's a lot of false starts. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't make any sense. There's things that I meant to do, things that I wound up doing that I didn't mean to do. And so the the, the next step is I try to rewrite a scene or two a day. And so I'll go back in and start cranking through the scenes, sometimes four or five scenes a day, depending on how long they are. And that's where you start adding and taking away. And at this point, I don't care so much about grammar or punctuation. I don't care about uh, spelling. All I really care about is big scene structure. Does the characters uh, act the way they ought to? Does the cause and effect, the causal connection between scene you know, A and scene B and scene C, does it make sense and does it carry through? How is the plot laid out? I look at all the big story dynamics, uh, the kind of things the development editor would look at. And I go back and I do all the rewriting. I take out a lot of the false starts. The things that I did well, I go back and I try to emphasize. Um, I haven't really worked on voice yet or dialogue. You know, the dialogue a lot of times is, is just to get the scene from, you know, the one scene to the next scene to the next scene. And so once I'm finished with the rewrite, then I'll usually take a couple days off. Then I'll come back and I will hit it again. And this time I will actually start focusing on things like um, description, dialogue, tightening things up, punching things out here and there. I always like to use the description of, uh, uh, was it Bob Ross when he used to paint and he goes, well, let's just put a little tree there. Right. Oh, yeah. Just to kind yeah. of punch out the, you know, the, the feeling of tranquility, you know, here and there. And, and so the third rewrite and each rewrite goes faster and faster. And so, you know, by the time I'm done with a third rewrite, hopefully I have the overarching plot structure laid out such that now I've made my, lump of clay into a, a pretty bowl and or or a nice you know vase and it's time to go the you know the final edit the final pass where i basically put the paint final coat of paint on it and get ready to fire it up in the in the uh, kiln and so that last you know final gloss and this is all before i've even given out to to my beta readers this is strictly just you know trying to do put that last you know coat of paint on it, make it look pretty, um, make sure this is, this is where, you know, you go through and, you know, I'll, I'll verify a lot of the details and make sure that the character attributes stayed the same you know, you know, Bob with brown hair still has brown hair at the end of the novel as he did at the yeah. start. Uh, this is where I'll go through the description and 
you know, take out some of the heavy handed stuff. I might add in um, some stuff. Color for me is very hard. I'm actually colorblind. I'm not completely colorblind. I'm color deficient. I have a real problem with reds. And so I don't really see colors the way a lot of people see colors. Um, I first noticed this when I was younger. I was going to be an electrical engineer and I wound up not being able to go because I couldn't pass some of the basic exams for color coded resistors and, uh, and that, you know, I would known even at an early age that, that I couldn't really match the colors on the clothes that I wore. I'd wear, you know, blue and purple. I thought they were the same color. One was just a little bit darker because I don't see the red in purple. And so, um, when I go back in and I punch out color, uh, I'll, I'll spend a lot of time going through just line by line looking for words, you know, color words. And, you know, do I say blue? And what did I really mean? And actually, sometimes I'll ask my wife, hey, here's a photo, and I think that's blue. What does that look like to you? Oh, that's, you know, Viridian blue. Ah, Viridian blue. So then I'll spend hours, you know, Googling things like Viridian blue and what are the different shades of auburn and, you know, what's the difference between alabaster and parchment and uh, a lot of of things like that and, and try to make a real conscious effort to clean up the language, tighten it up, punch it out. Um, you know, I tend to write, like I said, Elmer Leonard-esque, very sparse. Uh, I want the description to be as simple as possible, but still be punchy. You know, I, I want it to grab the reader. I want when people are reading it that you know that a lot of the details they can that, you know they can fill in with their own mind. And I always give the example that uh, Elmer Leonard, when he wrote the Raylan Givens uh, short story "Fire in the Hole," that became the TV show Justified. I think there's only two descriptions of Raylan Givens, one that he's tall and one that he wears a Stetson businessman's hat, not a Stetson 10-gallon hat. And that's pretty much the entire description that he gave for the main character. And when then, then, of course, it became a TV show. And when he wrote a book then that kind of incorporated some of the TV show into his own book, once again, there's hardly any description. The, the description that, that he gives of characters is – very small, but it's it's very sharp. It, it focuses the the reader's attention, and then they, you know, use their mind to fill in the rest of the details. And uh, I, I try to really avoid. Uh, and the example I give, and it's once again, it's a horrible example. God knows she sells a ton of books. Laurel K. Hamilton, who writes a vampire novel, she's a you know New York Times bestseller novelist. Uh, the Anita Blake Vampire Killer series. Um, fantastically long books. There's, I think, 20 now in the series. Uh, she sells a ton of these books, but a lot of times there'll be four pages of description to describe what one character is wearing. And so, uh, you know, and what happens is you start to notice from book to book that the, the character descriptions are just cut and pasted from book to book. And they're, they're, it really pads out the page count, but it doesn't really add anything to the character. Um, you know, what, what happens is you can describe the scene so much that the reader doesn't invest any of their own imagination in filling up the details. There's a fine line between, you know, a, a television treatment of a novel where there's no details at all and the Laurel K. Hamilton treatment where you just add page after page of description, so much so that the reader doesn't really emotionally invest in the characters. Yeah, and even like you mentioned before with Tom Clancy also with the info dump and explaining everything you know, to death, really. Did you find that to be a challenge when you're writing like Project Strike Force or the Ch- uh, Chimera Strain to keep it more El- like Elmer Leonard versus going down the Tom Yes, Clancy I do. I, I, I actually, when, so when Project Strike Force was complete, it was 108 to 109,000 words, somewhere in there. And I cut it down to 90. And, I'll, you know, 
And that's after actually, this was not really truly reflective of how much I cut because I actually added a bunch of stuff in while still cutting, you know, quite a bit out. Uh, I had pages of descriptions, technical details about firearms, about uh, planes and automobiles and military structure that most people, you know, really won't care about. Uh, I tried to get, I tried to get some of the details are actually as accurate as I could make them. Uh, there's a scene where they're in Lundstall, Germany at uh, Ramstein Air Force Base. And it just so happens that one of my coworkers was an MP there, stationed in like 2005 to 2006. And so the protocol that they use in case of a terrorist threat there in the book is actually based on a re- the, the real protocol that they actually do, based on an interview I did with my coworker, which is basically consists of me saying, hey, Paul, how does this happen? Well, and he laid out the, the command structure for the Air Force and who would contact who uh, if there was a terrorist attack and you're trying to get back on the base and so to the, to the point that when he actually read the book later and had forgotten he'd given the detail he said he said to me he said hey this is uh, uh uh this is real and i said yeah and he said no no no. i mean this is real real and yeah i mean there's fantastical elements in the book but some of the details are real and he said but this is real i said yes you gave me the details and oh that's right i guess i did i, I just couldn't believe it because when i got to when i was reading it i i actually started to feel like hey this is you know, he actually knows stuff. This is this is really you know the person you would contact, and this is how the base command structure works, and how the MPs work. Yes, it actually is, and so a lot of the details in the books, you know, I, I would cut out you know two or three pages of description and leave in just a single paragraph, uh, but I had done a ton of research, which. You know, a lot of people ask, well, how can you learn this stuff? Well, it's you just simply do the research. There's a scene where they're trying to uh, make a bomb, and they're using ammonium nitrate smuggled across the border from Pakistan, which is all based on, you know, stuff that actually happened. And they've added a chemical to the to the ammonium nitrate to keep it from exploding. And once again, based on uh, real stuff that happened. And I actually found this surfing the web on, believe it or not, a jihadist website where they describe how, you know, the Americans have added this chemical, but if they just take the ammonium nitrate and they put it in, uh, basically dig a trench, fill it with water, uh, throw the stuff in it, and the chemical will rise to the top. And then you create a small channel and drain the water off and then take the ammonium nitrate out and put it in a burlap sack, stick it outside, let it sun dry, then take the ammonium nitrate, smash it up with a mortar and pestle, and you're ready to add diesel fuel and turn it back into an IED along with a blasting cap. And so I, I put that in there, and it just so happens that one of my coworkers, also a former military person who had some uh, – had some – I want to say exposure because he actually got hit by an IED, but he had knowledge of he actually had knowledge of IEDs, and he said, "Hey, now that's actually real." And I said, "Yeah, it, it actually is." Um, yes, he was actually uh, believe it or not, he got hit by an IED in Iraq. Uh, three weeks left before he was ready to come back, and he wound up spending I think 16 months in Walter Reed recovering from the damage. Ooh. So, yeah, he was uh, he was he was badly hurt. Yeah. Now, it's interesting that you mentioned about the, the research and the jihadist website. I always wonder what the, like the FBI would get a thriller uh, writer's uh, computer that would freak yeah, out. Yes, I, I, said, I said to, uh, it just so happens that uh, a good friend of mine's brother is a uh, special agent in the FBI cybercrimes unit. And I was telling him that, you know, if, if they ever actually did a forensic analysis of my home computer and looked at my web browsing habits, they'd wonder what is going on with this guy, you know, because first off, you know, here's hit after hit where he was Googling, you know, improvised explosives. And then there's hit after hit where he was, inter- you know, he was, he was doing research on, you know, color names for, you know, skin tone. 
it's just a it's a very odd you know eclectic mix of of you know Google search and uh, of course then you know you, some of that you have to take with a grain of salt because as I'm sure you know anybody can put anything on the internet and that doesn't necessarily make it true so a lot of the times you know if I put anything in a book that I got from research and it didn't come from you know uh, certain uh, what I consider my kind of pre-approved sources. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the stuff about the Delta Force operators uh, in Project Strike Force comes from uh, Eric Haney's book about Delta Force, and also uh, the creator of Delta Force, Charlie Beckwith. Beck Beckwith Beckett Beckwith. I want to say Beckwith. Yeah, Beckwith. Yeah. yeah. So I, I read those books, and I just found it fascinating how they created Delta Force, and you know the the, the Delta Forces. Uh, you know the the creation of it and what they intended it to be and uh you know originally they really planned on it uh use you know being used for hijacking planes right and so a lot of their first mm-hmm. you know um a lot of their 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 first I, I wouldn't say research but they did do a ton of research but uh their first mission planning was how to save hostages and retake an airplane once it's been hijacked because of of I'm sure you know there was a ton of aircraft hijackings in the 70s and so but that evolved then into the uh uh attempt to rescue the hostages in Iran which failed and uh and of course since then you know the, who knows what they've actually done uh Eric Haney, yeah. you know, and even uh, they kind of gave, you know, Charlie Beckwith a pass since he created Delta Force. Eric Haney was apparently ostracized after his book, um, especially after his book got turned into the television series The Unit. Um, I think it was a David Mommet who uh, made the television show The Unit all based on uh, Eric Haney's book. Um, Surprisingly, the, the 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 consistency though, and that's the thing. So you're trying to figure out how much of this is real, and and to be honest, you have no idea how much of it's real, right? Because you know they're they're very tight lipped. Unlike the seals, who seem to just give up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, apparently the seals that you know, it's just like a, you know carte blanche to just tell every secret you know. Whereas the Delta Force, you know, there's so little details given out except for like you know basically three people: um, Eric Haney, uh, Charlie Beckwith, and um, the guy who wrote a book called, uh, first it was, I think it was called Kill Bin Laden or Get Bin Laden. And then he wrote, uh, um, a book called, I think it's, um, the black site, uh, uh, Dalton Fury was his code name that he created to, to write these books. Um, but there's really only been three people who've come out of Delta Force who've, who've written anything or given out any kind of real details. And, uh, and and all three of them have been, you know, Beckwith, they kind of gave a pass, but the other two guys were pretty much ostracized from the Special Forces community and from Delta Force. And according to Eric Haney, they're, you know, persa, uh, what is it, persona non grata at any of the Delta yeah. Force, you know, reunions or functions, uh, probably as it should be. And so when I'm writing my books, you know, there's a science fiction element to it. And, and then on the Delta Force side, you know, I try to put as much as I as I can kind of confirm or cross confirm across multiple books, but really the, so much of that is, is so secret. The, the operational secrets are, 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 it's so ingrained in the special forces community that you don't really know how much of that is real. And while I've got friends who've served in special forces, I've never had a friend serve 
in Delta Force. I, I do have a, f- a friend's little brother actually went through the selection process for Delta Force. And apparently that part is still pretty much like it's described in Eric Haney's book, which is that you know they take you out into a wilderness or into a desert or wherever, and they give you a map and they say, okay, go from here to here. And they don't tell you how much time you have. And you basically, you've got to take off through the wilderness or through the desert. And once you get to the next checkpoint, they tell you, okay, now go here. And they just keep this up until you either drop or until you give up. And the point is they want to see how far they can push you. And how, how you respond to stress, to lack of sleep, to lack of food, to lack of water. They don't tell you how much time you have. They're giving it, you know, you're giving, basically giving you the opportunity to, you know, wash yourself out of the selection process. And, and he did wash out. He, he, it was, he said it was the hardest thing he'd ever done. And I believe he was a ranger when he did it. And he said it was, uh, you know, he, he really didn't know how he was doing as he was going through the selection process. But by the time he was done, he said that, uh, you know, he was so ready to give up that he said, I just, I don't have it in me to do what they do. Yeah. And going through ranger training is no walk on the yeah. either. Yeah. <laughs> he did that successfully. Yeah. I, surprisingly, I've got another friend who's a, actually a former ranger and, uh, uh, a friend who's been an airborne and I, I run, uh, they're actually my beta readers uh, on a lot of stuff and they, co- they correct a lot of mistakes, a lot of, you know, dumb mistakes on my part that, you know, obviously I would know if I, if I'd served in the military, a lot of my family has served in the military. I have not. And so, you know, I, I go off what they say. I, I run it through them for feedback. Um, you know, but, but like, uh, so the, for instance, the chimera strain, I've got a scene where the, uh, seal team six, uh, which is there's, they're not really uh, SEAL team. They're not really uh, SEALs. They're Dev Grew, the special was a special operations development group. Um, they're the ones you know who went in on the Bin Laden raid. Um, I have a scene where they're in a uh, in a submarine in an underwater hangar, and they're going to use a SEAL delivery unit to attack a ship. And it just so happens that. Uh, uh, my friend's son is in the Navy and he actually works with a former SEAL and he asked him some details and the answer came back with, well, you can kind of make up what you want because n- there's so few people who actually know that and they're not going to speak. So how some of that stuff works, you're free to kind of use your imagination. Some of it you can, you can find through, through uh, the Department of Defense's own websites. But a lot of it and the actual operations is so top secret and so classified. And the people, there are so few people who are trained to do some of that underwater, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the SEALs go through under, you know, they go through uh, BUDS training where they, un- they learn underwater demolition. But, but the, the, the use of the SEAL delivery vehicles, you know, underwater to attack uh, another submarine or a ship, there's so few of them that actually do it. While there may be 3,000 active SEALs, there's a small, very small subgroup of the dev group guys who actually do that kind of work that, you know, who's going to, who's going to call you out on it? And he's like, it's, it's so rarefied and it's, it's so, you know, highly skilled that the people who actually do know, they really, they really, not only will they not say, they can't say. So now that you're uh, writing and, and, and publishing, uh, do you still find time to read? Are you still reading as much as you used yes. to read? Uh, I, 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 I still try to make time to read, uh, um, Every day, I, I try to read something. Uh, I still try nice. to read, you know, several books a week. Sometimes a dozen books a week. Sometimes, depending on my workload, with you know everything else and with wife and kids, it gets down to just a couple books a week. But I uh, lately, I've been a big fan of, uh, I believe it's Craig Johnson that wrote, writes the Walt Longmire books. 
Oh, those those are actually, you know, very good books. They got turned. Yeah, those thrillers. They, they are uh, murder mysteries, and they're set in Absaroka oh, County, nice. Wyoming. And they got turned into a TV show on A and E called Longmire. Um, and in a very odd coincidence, I saw the first book on the bookshelf walking through the bookstore, and I started reading it. And I thought this is an interesting book, and I had no idea that it was getting ready to air as a television show, and. I I bought it and I decided oh I, I think I'm gonna buy the second one right that was a really good book and so I go to buy the second one and suddenly it's got a like a cover that you know talks about this you know television show and I'm like a television show apparently I wasn't a big fan of A and E because I'd never heard of it but um, I went ahead and read all the I've, I'm current on the books in that series uh, fantastic books um, I also read uh, you know everything from George R R Martin all the way through to uh, uh, Trying to think of a good example of kind of an odd book that I've read lately. Uh, actually, uh, there, there's a there's a fantastic book out there, and I can't remember the author, but it's called Ready Player One, and it's a fantastic uh, fantastic novel that combines a lot of 70s and 80s culture. It's set, I think, in the year 2020 or 2025, and uh, it, the main character uh, references a lot of stuff that happened in the 70s and 80s from television shows and movies. A lot of Atari video games, which that was about the time I grew up. So uh, I found that just a fantastic story. Uh, I knew exactly what he was talking about in, when he mentioned everything from the Atari games. All, all, the ones that he specifically mentions are ones I specifically played as a kid, all the way up through to you know having to requote all the dialogue from. Uh, um, Big Trouble in Little China, which as a kid I went and saw and thought was just a fantastic movie. Yeah, we must be the same age because yeah, that was the same the same, uh, the same, same thing yes. for me. I'm actually quite quite concerned that they're remaking that with The Rock. Oh, uh, they? Just, oh I didn't they, know that. They just announced it I think last week. So uh, please don't destroy my childhood the way the way George <laughs> Lucas did by making Rito shoot yes. first. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, now, do you find movies and pop culture? Uh, influence your writing or in your novels at all? More than I'd like. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I, I, because I read so much when I was younger. You know, uh, when I'm writing, so much of that comes from the stuff I've read. But what I find myself falling into is that uh, I use pop culture, television, and and movie references, you know, as shorthand. And so uh, when I wrote Project Strike Force, I like to tell my friends, right, that I'm basically I'm writing uh, Star Wars, right? And the next book is going to be The Empire Strikes Back. And uh, well, I'll sum it all up in the third one, you know, out of a, out of a projected nine, and it'll be the uh, uh, Return of the Jedi, right? And uh, of course, you know, that doesn't take into account the new, you know, movies one, two, and three, um, but you know, once again, as, as a certain age, you know the Star Wars as Star Wars, The Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi. People like my daughter know Star Wars as uh, The Phantom Menace. Uh, I can't even think of that name. That's not uh, right. it, it's, Yeah, it's you know, Jar Jar Binks and everything, and I don't really understand a lot of it, and I found it horrible. But you know, once again, destroying the you – know, raping the memory of my childhood – but uh, but yeah, I I use a lot of a lot of uh, pop culture, a lot of movie and television references. Like I said, sometimes more than I'd like. You know, I try to filter some of that out. But uh, the nice part about writing things like um, Come What May and Hard Times is that that while the character is quite a bit younger than myself, you know, he he has some culture and pop references to draw from, and so his pop culture and references are um, age appropriate to him, right? Not age appropriate to me. So, 
you know, he, he refers to, you know, like that ancient, you know, movie, uh, with the little girl and the television and telling, you know, people they're here, you know, because for him, that probably would have been an ancient movie. Whereas for me, I saw it as a kid once again, which they're, re- which which, they're also, which remaking, they're also remaking. So, uh, yes, once again, apparently they've run out of stories and instead of, you know, purchasing indie author stories, <laughs> they, they've decided they'll just keep recycling yeah. the, you know, try to get every last cent they can squeeze out of their existing intellectual property. Yeah. Why try to over? Let's just yes. remake it. <laughs> so, <laughs> so now where can readers find you? Like uh, what's your website and your Facebook? Are you on Twitter? Uh, I'm on like Twitter. That? I think it's at Kevin Lee Swaim. I'm on Facebook at Kevin Lee Swaim. Uh, my blog, I, I I don't really point people to my blog. A lot of my blog is you know just me rambling about stuff that probably people don't care about. I do it more for you know for some of my friends. And uh, having said that, I actually have had authors contact me who found me through my blog of all things. And I've I've uh, I received a fantastic email from a guy. He's the chief firefighter uh, in Modesto, California, and he wanted to thank me and tell me how much he loved reading my book. And he just thought that Project Strike Force was one of the greatest novels he'd ever read. It was so fast paced; it was like watching a movie in his head. And he just love wow. he just loves thrillers and books on doomsday prepping. Oh, well, that's awesome! Oh, so there's, a, there's a little doomsday <laughs> prepping on and your. Well, book I have no that, idea where that came from. I, I, I'm doomsday prepping, and I mean, well, I'm, I'm glad he expressed the sentiment, right? I, I just couldn't understand yeah. where the doomsday prepping came in, and I actually went out to uh, Amazon, and sure enough, some of the also bots are books by are books about doomsday prepping, and so I don't understand the connection there, but I don't know if I had to guess, I was probably when I had a free giveaway at the same time that somebody was, you know, had a big giveaway or sale on books by doomsday prepping and it the search engine optimization at amazon linked them together but uh i'm not sure actually if that's it though sometimes you know i get emails from fans you know from all over the world who you know canada uh england australia and surprisingly i i I get these emails from people and they talk about how much they love my books and you know then they they'll reference other books that they read. I'm like, how did they ever make the connection from those books to my book? And I have no idea how it happens. I uh, I I'm not as hip on the internet marketing as I should be, especially considering I have like a tech you know kind of job. Um, but uh, well, that's cool though. You get readers are are reading their own. Uh they're getting their own things out of your book, so which yeah, is pretty cool. I, you know, I, I it, it means a lot to me when somebody sends me an email saying that they read my book and they really liked it. It uh, it actually does really, and I know it sounds like a cliche, but it actually makes my day because you know, obviously, I'm not writing for fame and fortune. I mean, I wouldn't turn it down if it came, as uh, you know, <laughs> as my old man used to tell me. I've tried rich and I've tried poor, and I like rich a whole lot better. But, uh, you know, having said that, you know, I, the, the, what really motivates me to write is to make somebody feel the way I felt when I read a good book. Um, and, and so, you know, when, when somebody sends me an email and tells me how much they like the, the book and how, you know, I could just couldn't stop thinking about it. It was, it was just like watching a movie. I just fell into it. You know, this, once again, this goes back to when I had class with Dave Wallace, who was reading one of my short stories. And he said, you know how I know that this was a good story? He's like, forget all the fancy lit crit and I know this is a good story because when I was reading it, I forgot I was sitting in the chair. Wow. And and you need to do more of this, right? You need to make me forget that I'm sitting in a chair reading, you know, a short story by a student, for, you know, from Central Illinois. He's like, if you can make me feel like I fell into the story and I lost sense of time, 
And when I'm done, I feel like I've run a marathon. That's what you need to shoot for. And I think you can do it. Uh, great advice too. Um, I don't, for if anyone's listening, that's uh, thinking about writing or, or trying to write, get into writing. Um, is there anything else you you want our our listeners to to know about you or or, or your books? Well, or? I, I, like you said, if you if you get into writing because you think you're going to write the next great American novel or you think that you're going to make a million dollars, you're going to be sorely disappointed. <laughs> Um, you know, I, 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 every sale to me is like a surprise. I'm glad that somebody bought the book. I'm glad that people are entertained because that's, you know, in, in the literary community, there's a big, you know, almost negative, uh, connotation to be entertaining, right? People want to, people want to yes. writing to have meaning. They want it to be complex and to speak about issues. And, you know, I always thought that can't it kind of be both? You know, I, I loved as, as a young man, I loved catch 22 by Joseph Heller. And I thought that it was fantastic how literary it was while at the same time being wildly entertaining. You know, and, and you didn't need to understand a lot of literary uh, critique or literary analysis to enjoy reading Catch-22. And you know, I, I thought that there was, there was needed to be more of that in the literary community, right? And the, the literary community hates that. They don't enjoy reading for enjoyment's sake. Um, and then there's some interesting you know, literary uh, theories out there about should – novels be entertaining should you have to work right what is serious literature versus what is escapist you know fantasy right my stuff is escapist fantasy um having said that i I try to write my plot such that uh uh project strike force in a lot of ways is uh some of the more interesting aspects of oedipus rex where by trying to keep an action from happening he causes the very action to happen and I laid out some of the plot in Project Strike Force based upon that. That's a very literary kind of you know tool to to try to, uh, to to try to slice and dice the plot up and move it around and you know do something that I would call you know literary, right? But at the same time, I wanted to be entertaining. And so uh, each book seems to be getting better and better. Uh, I, I I guess I've kind of found my voice. And so all I can tell people is is that you know you you really just have to sit down and do the work. And there's no shortcuts. Chances are you're not going to sit down and write a, the great novel or a fantastic thrilling read your first time out. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't do it, right? You shouldn't give up. Everything that's worth having takes a lot of hard work. Yeah, but that's uh, that's great advice. And uh, when's your so when's your next uh, book uh, coming out? Or are you uh, I believe on Hard it? Times will be out hopefully by if not the first of July by the end of July or the beginning of August. So it's complete. I'm actually uh, I was actually working on it this morning. I'm going to send it off to my editor here pretty soon. That would be the other piece of advice: is that if you can afford an editor, if you can scrimp and save your pennies or your bottle caps. Get an editor. Stephen King. I love Stephen King. A lot of people, you know, in the literary community think he's a hack, right? A lot of people on on just regular readers think that he's amazing. I tend to think that he's amazing, you know, and somewhat sometimes a hack. But having said that, even Stephen King needs an editor. And if you ever get the chance to read his book on writing where he shows you examples of short stories and how he edited them, you'll find out that his rough drafts aren't necessarily any better than yours. And so it's it's the editing and the rewriting and the final shaping is is really what makes uh, a novel polished and and what makes it both entertaining and sometimes it lets you layer in the meaning so that hopefully your readers take away not just that they had a good story but it gives them something to think about. Great. Well, that, thanks a lot, Kevin. I really really appreciate that. Some great advice and uh, it, was, it was fascinating to talk to you about the about the books and uh, thrillers and the whole nine yards. I uh, I appreciate it. I had a good time. 
Okay, All right. Well, thanks thank very you. much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Meet the Thriller Author. You can visit our site at get.thrillingreads.com forward slash podcast for more information on our podcasts. And you can also subscribe to this podcast uh, on your favorite podcatcher like iTunes, the most popular one, of course. Uh, just search for Meet the Thriller Author and you'll find me there. And I'm also on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash meet thriller author love to hear from you love to hear your comments and your feedbacks on the shows and i'll have a new podcast a new interview with a thriller author uh, i'll be posting them every tuesday so stay tuned for that and don't forget to subscribe and please visit my author website at ellenpeterson.com